You are the one who is holy and righteous and has been perfect for all time. In fact, for all eternity, before time began, you were complete and holy and perfect, lacking nothing. And yet you chose to create. You chose to create life and to breathe into mankind the soul of life different than all the rest of your creation. In doing so, you gave man the choice to sin and, and our representative, our great, great ancestor, Adam, chose to sin. And because of that, we live under a curse today. And though that didn't surprise you, for you knew what would happen, you knew what you would do, it was always your plan to be the rescuer for us. So thank you for, in eternity past, planning to send Jesus, God the Son, to be our sin, to stand in our place as our representative so that we, by faith, might have life. We thank you, Father, for the simple truth of the gospel that all are sinners and fall short of God's glory, that all deserve punishment in hell, forever separated from God, our Creator. But you, in your love and compassion and generosity and in your justice and righteousness, sent Jesus so that he might be the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. And you have freely provided this gift of salvation that we receive by faith so that when we do so, when we recognize our sinful state and accept Jesus as our Savior, you make us clean. And though we don't always live up to that, in fact, we regularly do not live up to that, you have called us clean. You have called us your children. You've promised to one day make us whole where the sins of this earth will no longer be part of our desire or even capacity, where the pains of this earth, the struggles, the difficulties day in and day out will all be behind us. For not only will we be made right and perfect in our constitution and in our bodies, but we will be in a perfect environment where thorns will no longer infest the ground, when our labor will no longer be toilsome and hard. Father, we look forward to that day. This week, Lord, we set aside time to express our thankfulness to you and, and that, that gratitude isn't because everything's right. Everything is not right. There is loss that we've experienced. There is pain that we go through. There is struggles all the time. But our gratitude to you is genuine and real because you are the giver of every good gift and you are the one who gives us hope. You are the one who gives us that, uh, that wellspring of of hope that 
thrives in the midst of sorrow and struggle and trial and difficulty. And because your promises are true, we know without a doubt that you will one day make all things new. So Father, let us thank you in advance for doing such a thing. Let us thank you for the promises of your word, for your goodness, for your greatness, and help us to live lives that reflect your goodness and greatness. Father, thank you that we could gather here together today to worship you as your people. Father, I ask that you would be pleased to, uh, to work in our hearts and lives through the power of your word that we would not resist your spirit in any way, that we would not resist or reject your word, that you would grow us today. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. I invite you to join me in the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter three. Uh, when we get there, we will begin in verse number eight. Uh, our series is the mind of Christ, for it is Jesus Christ who is our perfect example of humility and obedience to God the Father. He, never having sinned, still obeyed God the Father. Not because that was, a, a, because he, not because he didn't want to obey. He did want to obey. But his obedience wasn't necessarily easy either. To leave the glories of heaven and come here and live with people like us who should have, from the get-go, worshipped him thoroughly, through and through, with their heart and mind and soul. And yet, Scripture records, uh, in summary and in detail, that he came to his own people and his own people rejected him. And lest we cast stones on them, we would have done the same. Last week we examined Paul's valuation of his heritage, of his accomplishment, of who he was and where he came from, and, and he compared that to the surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ, how Jesus is greater than any accomplishment he might have ever had, any, any value that he might have placed in his own life and work. So today we continue. We, we looked a bit at verse 8 last week. We'll continue uh, adding to verse 8, verse 9. Our big idea this morning is we are saved by Jesus alone through faith alone. And if you think I'm moving quickly and diving in rapidly, there's a reason for that. Hang on, because here we go. Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. O oh, great God, this passage is invaluable in our lives. Help us to understand it, to adore you for it, and to walk away with this truth 
embedded so deeply in us that it never leaves us. In your son's name, I ask and pray. Amen. Paul is employing a very powerful method of teaching in these verses. He's using his own testimony. He's showing how uh, he grew up in a good Jewish home. I almost said Jewish Christian home. That's not a thing. He, he grew up in a good Hebrew Jewish home, and he knew the scriptures, and he studied the scriptures, and he made his life work the knowing and studying and proclaiming and living out of the scriptures. He was a Pharisee. He's using his personal experience to teach biblical doctrine. Now, to an extent, we can do that too. When we share with others how God has worked in our lives, but then we back it up with Scripture. Now, what Paul's doing is something we can't do. He's sharing his experience, and it is Scripture. Okay, uh, Don't take your testimony, your experience in Jesus Christ, and, and tell it to others as though that is Scripture. Use the written Word of God. Okay, uh, But he's using a powerful method of his testimony in these verses. Now, as an illustration, I want us to, to think of a coin. Uh, and I'm going to use this illustration for each point. A coin has two sides, right? Heads and tails, the obverse and the reverse for those who are technical. If you have a coin that has Abraham Lincoln's face on one side, and on the back you have Abraham Lincoln's memorial, what do you have? You have a penny, right? Now, because it's this era in time, the back might have something different on it, right? There are several designs that uh, are, uh, make official pennies. But if you have a coin that has Abraham's Link, Abraham Lincoln's face on the front, and it's the right size and it's the right material, but on the back it's blank, do you have a penny? No, you do not. In order to have a penny, you must have both sides. So what we're going to look at are three points of increasing importance, okay? So it's that last one that is very important. We understand that these two sides must be fused together in order to have the whole. And so we're going to use this, the, the coin as an illustration. Uh, for a penny to be legit, it must have both sides. For the aspects of salvation that we're going to look at today, to genuinely be salvation, it must have both sides of the coin. So we're going to look at three coins, three pairs of truths that are directly attached to each other, meaning that to have one side, we must also have the other. So let's look at our first coin, the coin of relationship. For this coin, the two sides are loss on one hand and knowing Christ on the other. So Paul says, I count all these things as loss, so what? so I might gain Christ. That's in verse 8. In these verses, we look at Paul's heritage and achievement. Let me, let me read that again for you. Indeed, I count everything as lost. What's he talking about? Well, in the previous verses, he's talking about uh, his Jewish heritage, his achievements as a zealous religious man pursuing what he thought was God's will for his life. Okay, I count this all as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord and for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as what? Remember we said last week that that word rubbish is garbage, as trash, as dung. In the verses 
we see his heritage and achievements and the great pride that he took in them previously, but now compared to the surpassing weight of Jesus, that's just all nothing. His example, his testimony is actually a natural way that we would respond prior to salvation as well. Remember, he had great pride in where he came from. He talked about being of the tribe of Benjamin. He knew his heritage. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. The way he shares his testimony is a natural way that we would as well. In fact, uh, there's a certain percentage of us who would start out our salvation story like this. I grew up in a Christian home. First of all, praise the Lord that the Lord saw fit to have you grow up in a home that loved the Lord. But growing up in a Christian home does not save you. Now, it can lead to your salvation because from a child you've heard the Holy Scriptures as Paul reminded Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. So on the one hand, praise the Lord. In your most formative years, God saw fit to bless you with exposure to the gospel and examples of godly life. But on the other hand, a godly heritage only saves you when it, directly, when it directs you personally to the gospel and to saving faith. Just growing up in a Christian home does not save. So Paul takes his godly heritage, that relationship with his family of his ancestors, and he makes a comparison to his relationship with Christ. And he says, all that is nothing compared to Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to note how the culture among the Jewish people, how they thought of comparisons. It was true then, it's true today among the Hebrew people. Uh, in their culture, everything is either black or it is white. It is all yes or it is absolutely not and never going to happen. Okay, so they either really, really love something or they really, really hate it. They just don't think and speak in gray areas like we do a, a lot. We see this cultural mindset shine brightly in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 14, 26, Jesus is teaching his disciples. He says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, in this verse, is Jesus really telling his disciples to disobey the law of God? Because doesn't the law tell us to love our parents, to love our family, to love even our neighbors, to love even those who hate us? Is Jesus really telling them to disobey the law in order to be his disciple? No. He's saying that in comparison to your love for your family, your parents, your children, your spouse, that that love should look like hate compared to your love for Jesus. Right? That's what he's saying. So uh, that, that cultural concept of, of all or nothing shines through all throughout Scripture. Uh, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul is not despising his Jewish heritage by, by calling it rubbish, nor does he even hate the zeal that he had before, though certainly he probably hates some of the things that he did 
in that zeal, persecuting the church uh, as certainly one of those things he would hate. No, he's making a a comparison. In light of the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ, every other relationship looks and feels and smells like garbage. Because Jesus is that great and lovely and sweet. Who are you hanging on to? Are you treasuring someone or something more than you treasure Jesus? See, with this coin of relationship, there is loss. There is the abandonment, the giving up of all these other relationships compared to the value of the relationship we have with Jesus Christ. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying all of a sudden we neglect all others. I'm saying in comparison to our relationship with others, our relationship to Christ must be that strong. Both sides of this coin will be here for a believer in Jesus Christ. The loss of affection for their heritage, for their achievements, for all these other things, and a growth, a gain of of love and a focused attention for Jesus Christ. If you are trusting in your achievement or past or uh, anything other than trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, then I'm sorry, you are not saved. For we are saved by Jesus alone, through faith alone. The second coin we see in our passage, the coin of unity. Gain, the gain of Jesus Christ, the gaining of that relationship with Jesus Christ is, is one face of the coin, the other face of the coin in, in this illustration, remember these coins are not re- completely linked to each other. We're three separate coins. The second coin, the, the flip side of gain of Jesus Christ is remaining with Jesus Christ. If you have gained Jesus Christ, then you will remain in him. You will still be unified with him. So I'm calling this the coin of unity. Where is this? Verse 8, about halfway through. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Gain is more past tense. Found is that ongoing continuation. Paul's past was that he was a zealous Pharisee. His past was that he was a teacher of the law. But also in his past was the road to Damascus. I love that story. And I know the author Luke loved that story because it finds its way into the book of Acts multiple times. How Paul, walking on the road to Damascus in order to persecute the church, was stopped dead in his tracks by the voice of God. And he responded in faith and repentance. He turned away from his sin and turned toward God in a glorious way. His his gain of Jesus Christ that happened in the past is evident because he remains in Jesus Christ in the present. Here's the issue. Many people have had a come-to-Jesus moment. They've had this moment in their life where they felt genuinely sorry for their sin. They, they prayed a prayer. 
Maybe they started going to church. Maybe they gave to the church. Served. But over time, there was no evidence that they were really a new creation in Jesus. Paul says that if he's not satisfied to have gained Christ only to later on be found to no longer be in him. He says that I may gain Jesus and be found in him. This particular doctrine goes by a variety of terms. Perhaps you've heard of some of them. We call it the security of the believer. Paul's not looking for conversions. He's looking, or or to be converted himself, he's looking to remain converted. We call it the security of the believer. We call it the perseverance of the saints. That those who are genuinely believers, they are saints, they will persevere to the end. We call it once saved, always saved. Right? And you should be at least nodding inside your head, if not with your head, that all these are good terms and they are what we believe, what we proclaim as being biblical doctrine. They're all good terms. I personally prefer the term security, the concept of being locked in, of being safe and secure with Jesus Christ. Jesus taught that the ones whom the Father gives to him, he keeps. And how many of them are lost? Not one. Not even one. You, my friend, are not the exception. You are not going to come to faith in Jesus Christ, genuinely believing in him for your salvation in all that that means. And you are not going to lose that salvation. He loses not one of them. Praise the Lord. Closely related to the security of the believer is the assurance of the believer. Whereas security is the fact of God as declared in Scripture, assurance is what I feel. And sometimes we don't feel it, right? Sometimes, like, I've been struggling with this sin, and I turn from it, and then I find myself tempted again, and I turn back to it, and then I turn from it, and I turn back to it, and I'm not quite sure if I'm saved. Some of you have thought that. Some of you might be thinking that today. It's okay to have those doubts. Turn to Scripture. If you still struggle with doubts, I will help you turn to Scripture. Assurance is the confidence that I have that I am saved or that you can have that you are truly a believer in Jesus Christ. And that assurance is based on the security of the believers found in Scripture. Here are some verses you can jot down. I didn't manage to get these on a list. I apologize. I should have done that. 1 Peter 1, 3, and 5. If you're taking notes, just write down this reference. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, okay? Do you hear the security there? It keeps on going. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Who is keeping you saved in these verses? It is God himself. He has this inheritance, this 
gift to you, waiting for you in heaven, and he, by his power, is keeping you and keeping it for you. Let me read that part again. This inheritance kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith, that's your faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Here's another verse. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. How are we sealed and secured? By the Holy Spirit. Again, God himself. John 10 28, I referenced this uh, or alluded to this just a moment ago. Jesus teaching his disciples, uh, uh, he's praying. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He goes on to say that the Father holds on to them as well. So you have that, that double hanging on to by the Godhead of your soul. Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. See, if it's my own doing, I can probably undo it. Right? So, can a believer be assured of their salvation? Yes. By studying the doctrine of the security of believers found in in scripture. So both sides of these coins are going to be true for the believer. If you have gained Christ, you will remain in Christ. They are fused together. If one does not remain in Christ, then they had never gained Christ to begin with. Now, the third point that we're about to get to is the most important one. And if that's the case, why not just skip to it? Paul is building a logical argument. In fact, uh, the more you read of Scripture, you can take, uh, well, you can take this with any passage, but especially the writings of Paul. Um, he is very meticulous in the formulation of, of his writings in, in building these compounding arguments to make his point. Logically, if anyone were to have reason to trust in their own person for salvation, it should have been Paul. That's what he built for us in the verses we looked at last week and we've touched on this week. If anyone should have been able to trust in his own works for salvation, it should have been Paul. And what does he call it? Garbage. He instead renounces any sort of merit he might or others might think he has because salvation is found in Christ alone through faith alone. Now, I'm not sure if I've made my big point clear yet. Salvation is found in Christ alone through faith alone, not our 
position in society, not our family heritage, not our achievements, not our accomplishments, not our works, in Christ alone, through faith alone. Which brings us to the third coin. We've had relationship and unity. Here's the coin of salvation. This is the coin that is, that understanding it in a biblical, godly sense, the way God intends us to understand these truths are of eternal life and death importance. It is take note, highlight, mark up, scribble and put bright shining lights on this truth in your notes or in your mind. However you are taking note of this, this is of the most importance. And here is our coin. Righteousness is the flip side of faith. Righteousness on one side and faith on the other. If you have faith in Jesus Christ and all that it means to have faith in Jesus Christ, you have righteousness, the righteousness that God requires for you to be entered into heaven. Conversely, if you are righteous in God's eyes, then you are righteous because of your faith and not because of your works. Again, this is eternal life and death importance. What makes this doctrine of this level of importance is because the largest religious group on our planet is the Roman Catholic Church claiming 1.2 billion members. That's around 15% of the entire world's population would claim to be Catholic. And they got it wrong. And not only did they get this doctrine wrong, when confronted with it, they doubled down on their wrong doctrine. Here's what I mean. In our verse today, verse 9, Paul wants to be found in Jesus not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that comes from obeying the law, knowing the law, practicing the law, not having a righteousness that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That last phrase is in there just in case you didn't catch it. Our righteousness comes by faith. In the early 1500s, with Martin Luther and his 95 theses that you can look up and read, his 95 points of contention that he had against the Catholic Church. Here he was, a, a pastor, a priest in the Catholic Church, and there were 95 official points of doctrine that he goes, this, this is not biblical. We should not be doing this. And his point was to make a discussion. So he posted it on the chapel door so that it would be a, a place of discussion among those who are in seminary and that they, he could instigate change within the Catholic Church. And they rejected it. So between Martin Luther and followed shortly by the teachings of John Knox and John Calvin and Holdrick Zwingli and Philip Melanchthon, names that I really haven't talked much about since college, let's be honest. But all these reformers all were kind of on the scene about the same time in the early 1500s. And in 1545 and in the following years, the Catholic Church responded by clarifying their own doctrine as a 
kind of a reaction to the Reformation. These are known as the Canons of the Council of Trent. If you just remember Council of Trent and, and look it up, you can find all these canons that I'm going to talk about, these, uh, these doctrinal statements that, that they put together. And what was going on is in the Catholic Church, there was actually some, some blurriness as to what official doctrine was. Uh, Martin Luther would say, you are saved by grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. That was Martin Luther's mantra. And, and there were others in the Catholic Church that agreed with him, uh, but there, there was this blurriness because there were others who were saying, no, you are saved uh, by having Jesus pay for your sin, but then you must earn your righteousness afterwards and and when you don't earn enough righteousness in your lifetime, guess what? You have to go to purgatory. And so instead of turning towards Scripture that Martin Luther and others were pointing the church to, they instead, at the Council of Trent, said this. Here's canon number nine from the Council of Trent. If anyone says that by faith alone the, the impious or the sinner is justified in such a way as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining of grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will. That's a fancy way of saying of doing good works. Let him be anathema. Now, we don't use that word anathema very often. It is as theologically snobby a curse word as you could come up with. It is. Let me boil that down a little bit. Canon 9 says of the official doctrine of the Catholic Church that has never been recanted, so this is from the mid-1500s, has never been abandoned, has been reinforced actually by the Catholic Church, is that if anyone says that they are made right in God's eyes by faith alone without adding works to it, let that person saying that be accursed. I guess I'm accursed. Canon number 24. If anyone says that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that the said works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause or increase of justification, let him be anathema. Did you hear that? If anyone says that I am justified and I do good works because I am justified under God's uh, word, because of the blood of Christ, because I have faith in Jesus Christ, and I do good works in response to it and not doing good works in order to gain or increase that justification, let him be anathema. Canon number 30. If anyone says that after the grace of justification has been received, to every penitent sinner the guilt is remitted and the debt of eternal punishment is blotted out in such way that there remains not any debt of temporal punishment to be discharged either in this world or in the next in purgatory before the entrance to the kingdom of heaven, let him be anathema. In other words, if there is to be no payment of our own sin in this life or somehow in the next, then we should be cursed. So instead of being faced with Scripture by the Reformers, instead of submitting themselves to the Word of God, the Roman Catholic Church went the other direction and made it very, very clear 
that we are not to believe that salvation comes through faith alone in Jesus Christ, and yet today's passage in the Holy Bible, we read that our righteous state is placed on us by faith in Jesus and not by works. In fact, he, he said that, didn't he? said, and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And yet, this is not the only verse that says such things. If it were, we might struggle this is not a, a one-off verse, obscure sort of doctrine. Here are some other passages. Romans three twenty-eight: For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Let me read that again. For we hold that we are justified by faith apart from the works of the law, apart from obeying the law. We, are, we stand right before God Without works, can it get much clearer? It's not to say that obeying God's word is unimportant to us. It is important to us. But it does not, obeying God's word does not and cannot save. Obeying the law of God does not and cannot save. Only faith saves. Faith has always been the basis of justification, of being made right or being made just, hence the word justification, in God's sight. Genesis 15, 6. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed and was made right. Ah, but the Roman Catholics would use this same verse as quoted in the book of James. I'm going to put this on the screen for us so we can look at it together. James chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? James is making a, a particular faith that our, a point that our faith must result in action. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now doesn't that say the opposite of what I've been saying? We shouldn't be afraid of scripture that appears to contradict other scripture. We shouldn't. Because when we have multiple passages, if we have a large Bible, we take the passages that are clear to give clarity to the ones that are obscure. Because you can take this passage to mean the way the Catholic Church teaches. So what do we do with this? Do we cower? Say, uh-oh, I guess the Catholics are right. By the way, it is not my intention to bash the Catholic Church. We live in a very Catholic area, and you have friends and family. I have friends. I don't have any family that are Catholic, but I have friends who are Catholic. 
And they're good people. They're nice people, many of them. The kind of people you would like to have as your neighbor. They're lost because they miss this coin. Let me keep going. James was the first book of the New Testament to be written, and that's important to keep in mind. Uh, As the church was started, they understood grace by faith alone. They understood salvation by faith alone so much that they were being inactive. And so James, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, guided by the Holy Spirit, writes to them, your faith needs to be put into action. You need to live it out. Later, Paul writes, also under the inspiration of God, in the same way, not to contradict James, but to clarify. Romans chapter 5, about halfway through verse 9, we read this. And by the way, I'm giving you these passages so that you can tell, I'm, you can read the context. I'm not picking and choosing, trying to make a passage say something that it doesn't say. Okay? I know it's time to go. It's fine. (laughs) Romans chapter 4, verse 9. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. That's what I was saying earlier, but then gets a little distorted, a little murky in James. We say that that Abraham was counted righteousness because of his faith. Verse 10. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but it was before he was circumcised. Circumcision is... uh, well, it was an act of obedience on his part. So was it before he obeyed or after he obeyed? Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So uh, God declared Abraham righteous because he believed God, and then Abraham obeyed. Now, does this actually contradict what James is saying? Not really, when we put them together, they do actually harmonize. Abraham was declared by God to be righteous by his faith, and then Abraham demonstrated. By the way, it's not just Catholics who get this wrong, but the Catholic Church went out of their way to double down on their doctrine. They have taken the less clear passage of James 2 and have given it supremacy over the clear passage of James 4 and others. Not James 4, Romans 4. You know what I mean. James 2 does not have supremacy over Romans 4. And and I get that because there are plenty of other passages. I've only put three up on the screen, but there are many, many more. Here's Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. By faith, justification is in the past. According to the Catholic Church, you're never fully justified until you've worked off that last sin in purgatory. What hope is that? And uh, that's not even the point. Where's the biblical truth in that? That's the point. Galatians 2.16 Yet we, knew th- we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. How are we made right with God? Faith. 
So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. How many of our Catholic neighbors and friends and family members are justified by their good works? Catholic or not, none, right? Romans 10, 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Have I made my point? And, and by my point, I mean the point of Scripture. Again, um, we all know some people who believe that Jesus died for their sins, but also believe that they must live good enough to be righteous. And so it's easy for us to get into a discussion about salvation with, with someone we, we believe is unsaved. And we could ask them, have you ever put your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation? Or, or we might ask it, have you ever put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? And those are good questions. But a Catholic, a good Catholic person could answer yes to both of them and still be lost. Because they put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, for what they believe to be their salvation, but they're putting their hope in their own works to be made righteous. And you cannot split that coin. To have faith and not have righteousness already credited to you is not the gospel. It is a false gospel. And it is valueless. Yet the scripture is so plain. There is no place of having our sins purged from us before we can get to heaven called purgatory. There is faith in Jesus Christ and all that that means, it, it means understanding who he is. He is God the Son, always lived a perfectly righteous life. He's from eternity past, born of the Virgin Mary. You may not understand all those things, but you can't deny any of those things. To have faith in Jesus Christ and know that that faith offers forgiveness. And when we have that, we also have righteousness. We can't separate those two things. To be forgiven is to have righteousness. Because that's how God designed it. Two sides, one coin. If you say you have faith in Jesus, but you are trusting in yourself for your righteousness, your salvation coin is fake. It is not legal tender, as it were. When you have faith in Jesus Christ, you have righteousness. So what is the basis of your faith? What are you trusting to make you right before God? So you can have that relationship with him. So you can have God. So you can have his gift. So you can have eternal life. What are you trusting in? My friend, if it is 
anything other than Jesus Christ, then you have not been saved. Surrender in faith to him today. Let go of the pride that wants to do right in order to be accepted by God and turn in faith to him. If you are trusting Jesus to make you right, then carefully and purposefully share the gospel with those who don't understand this vital, vital truth. Yes, we receive forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ. And yes, we receive his righteousness at the same time. Let's pray. Father, your your gospel is so simple and profound. And yet, in our humanness, humanness, our humanity, we, we make it more complicated. Thank you for the clarity of Scripture that we are made right through Jesus Christ. We remain right with you because of Jesus Christ and because of him alone. Father, I pray that you would use the word today to sharpen our understanding of your gift of salvation so that we might, first of all, cling to it ourselves, but also strive to share it well with others and that your truth would take root in even some of our friends who believe that they are right with you, but they are not. Give us opportunity even this week to share your truth with them in a loving and compassionate way, showing them from Scripture how they can have righteousness apart from their own works. Thank you for your word, its clarity, and its power in our lives. In Jesus' name.